Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books and Sociology podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we will be talking with Peter Hart Brinson about his new book, The Gay Marriage Generation, How the LGBTQ Movement Transformed American Culture. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me. Can you first start us off by telling us about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am an associate professor of sociology and communication journalism at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And I have been in Wisconsin more or less since graduate school, uh, where I did the, the research for this book initially. So how did the book come about for you? It all starts with uh, 2006, an experience I had as a teaching assistant in graduate school. Uh, that year, there was a referendum on the ballot in Uh, Wisconsin that would ban same-sex marriage. In other words, it would amend the state constitution to define marriage as between one man and one woman only. I was a teaching assistant for a course called Contemporary American Society. And the week of the election, I decided to have our students talk about the issues on the ballot. And I noticed while talking to my students that even the conservative students in the class Uh, would speak up against the constitutional amendment. In other words, they were pro-gay marriage. And similarly, there was a right-wing activist newspaper on campus, not just the typical campus newspaper, that a newspaper that was sort of like the Tea Party before there was a Tea Party. And they would reliably espouse conservative principles or follow the Republican Party line, but they didn't on this issue. And so these two events made me wonder... If this was such a generational event, that the case of gay marriage was such a generational shift that even right-wing conservatives were out of step with their elders on this issue. And then similarly, at the time, a lot of left-wing liberals would vote for Democratic candidates, but vote against gay marriage. And so I wanted to understand if this was a generational issue, um, and if so, why? I wanted to get kind of behind the public opinion data, so to speak, to really try to understand what made different cohorts think differently about this issue. So in the beginning of the book, you define some main concepts that get used throughout the text. Um, And so we'll obviously be talking more about them in more in depth. Um, But I was hoping you could set the stage for us by helping us understand some of the basic concepts that you use a lot, like generational change and schemas. The first thing I want to clear up is that it's important to recognize that there is a difference between these two ideas of cohort and generation. Now, generation is a complicated word, and most of the time in sociology, we use it to refer to family relationships. Uh, you know, so you know when you have children, that's the next generation. Uh, but there's another meaning of generation that has to do with these social groups uh, that were all born in a particular period of time or experience the same event at the same time. Now, typically in sociology, we use the word cohort to talk about those groups of people. But the idea of a generation 
when applied to those groups conveys something more than just the idea of a cohort. So all people are in the same cohort if they were born in the same year, for example. Uh, Or we talk about the baby boomers uh, as being a cohort, right? What they have in common is that they share a birth year. But a generation means that you're not just part of the same cohort, but that you also have a unique experience with society or with a historical event that causes people to develop new ways of thinking and new ways of acting in the world. So part of what makes generational change is cohort replacement. The idea that older people in the population are continually dying and they're being replaced by younger people in the population who are being born or who are entering the electorate in this case. Generational change only happens when those young people who are being born or or who are entering the electorate differ in some fundamental respect than the older people who are leaving it. So in other words, cohort replacement always happens. It's biographically, biologically inevitable. But generational change doesn't always happen. So the idea of a schema here is important because one of the things that can cause a a new generation to emerge is that these young cohorts develop new schemas for thinking about the world. And a schema is basically a set of mental associations that you have about an object in the world. Uh, So when I say the word tree, for example, the image that pops into your mind is a collection of associations. Uh, It's tall. It has a trunk. It has leaves that are probably green. You know, you have a mental image in your mind of what the word tree means. And, And those collection of associations that you have with the word tree is a schema. So you get into Mannheim's theory of generational change, and here you're talking about interpretive analysis, historical analysis, and demographic analysis. And so I was hoping you could explain how you see that um, playing into your book. For a long time, we did uh, the analysis of generational change in demographic terms, uh, and that focused on the question of cohort replacement. So when we saw the attitude change in the population, we wanted to know how much was attitude change being caused by cohort replacement, that is older people dying and being replaced by young people, versus how much was the change being caused by people uh, getting, you know, the average age of the population getting older or younger. Um, So in this case, this would be aging. Uh, And when people age, it's oftentimes that people's attitudes change because they take on a new role uh, or their status changes in some way. We also want to know how much that attitude change in the population might be called caused by what's called a period effect. And that's when something happens in society uh, that causes the attitudes of everyone to change at the same time, no matter how old or how young you are. So studies of generational change have always required this demographic level analysis of how changes in the population are mapping onto changes in public opinion or changes in other social indicators. My argument in the first chapter is that we need both a demographic analysis and a historical analysis that identifies the moments in history that causes new generational schemas or new generational emerges to a world. And then 
for a third uh, uh, perspective, we need a cultural and an interpretive perspective. We need to be able to link those historical changes with the demographic level analysis of public opinion change through the ways that people understand and make sense of the world. And so I argue in the first chapter that in order to do a thorough analysis of generational change, we need all three perspectives. We need demographers, we need historians, and we need interpretive sociologists. And only when you do all three of those things can we really fully explain generational change as it happens. And so that's what your book is really about. But before we get into the sort of nitty gritty data details, um, I really like in chapter two, how you use a Seinfeld quote. Um, And the quote is not that there's anything wrong with that. So I was hoping you could explain how you really saw that um, getting to the ideas of behavior versus identity. Yes, that's a famous episode in, in Seinfeld. And of course, Seinfeld is something of a famous sitcom. What's important about that quote uh, for this book is that that episode came out at an absolutely pivotal moment in the battle over gay rights. And I don't think we knew it at the time, but the years 1992 and 1993 represented a watershed year in how popular culture and liberal politicians talked about sexuality. Prior to the late 80s and early 90s, we in our society talked about sexuality as a behavior. We just understood that sexuality was something that you did. Um, For example, in 1986, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Bowers versus Hardwick that two consenting adults who were caught having the wrong kind of sex, even in the privacy of of their own home, could be criminally prosecuted just for doing it the wrong way. So up until the late 80s and early 90s, our society defined sexuality in behavioral terms. It was what you did. By the early 90s, 1992, 93, a new way of imagining and talking about sexuality had taken root. And this was the idea that sexuality is an identity. It's not what you do, it's who you are. Uh, and The Seinfeld uh, clip that I start the book off with, or I'm sorry, that I start the chapter off with, really captures the ways in which American popular culture, and especially young liberals, were still caught in between these two different understandings of sexuality. On the one hand, uh, older Americans, conservatives, religious organizations, continued to define homosexuality as immoral and as sinful behavior. Uh, And many people in the early 90s, uh, that was the cultural heritage that they grew up with. Homosexuality was wrong, and everyone just sort of believed that to be true and and thought of of homosexuality in in that way. But not that there's anything wrong with that. That phrase captures this new tendency as well. The idea that we know that we were raised in a society that depicted homosexuality as bad, but I also now think of homosexuality to be uh, different than that. It's not just about what you do, it's about who you are. Uh, And so that Seinfeld quote captures the unease that defined American popular culture at that time. 
you then end up labeling um, this cohort, the identity cohort, because of that shift. And so I was hoping you could talk about um, sort of what you found uh, when you looked in the GSS data in terms of the overview across time and then the supplement of the Pew data. Yeah. When I analyzed the public opinion data, I found that being a member of the identity cohort was a really important predictor of a person's opinion about same-sex marriage. And this controls for all the relevant demographic variables. It it controls for the year that the survey was conducted, uh, and it controls for uh, whether or not people thought that homosexuality was a sin. So in other words, there's something about coming of age after 1992 that caused these young people, what I call the identity cohort, uh, to have different attitudes about same-sex marriage. And of course, the public opinion data doesn't often go deep enough into people's worldviews about a given topic to really help us understand what the nature of that change is. Why is it that the identity cohort thinks differently than older cohorts about this issue? The data from the Pew Research Center shed a little bit of light on the question. Um, The Pew Research Center asked several questions that allowed me to look into people's attitudes towards lesbians and gays, which is a different measure than people's beliefs about whether or not homosexuality is immoral. It let me look into uh, whether or not people believed homosexuality is something that you were born with or something that you choose. It allowed me to look at uh, personal contact with lesbians and gays and whether or not knowing someone who is lesbian or gay explains that difference. And at the end of the day, none of those variables explained exactly why the identity cohort was different, why they held different views about gay marriage just because of the period in which they were born. And so I turned to qualitative interviews to try to answer that question. With your interview data, you bring up one of the interviewees that you had named Tom. And so I was hoping you could give us sort of the story of Tom and the puzzle that um, his answer presents to you. Tom was a parent of a student who I interviewed. The student was at uh, Northern Illinois University in DeKalb. Uh, And Tom was his father. And I had a very long conversation with Tom in the living room of his house. Uh, And he was a very thoughtful individual. He identified as a Republican. Uh, He was Catholic. Uh, And because of his age, these are all important variables that ordinarily would predict that he opposed gay marriage. But when I asked him directly if he opposed gay marriage... He sat and thought for a long time before he answered. And then when he finally did answer, he gave sort of a wishy-washy answer that made it seem like he didn't want to answer the question at all. Ultimately, he ended up saying that, that he ended up not expressing any opinion whatsoever. Uh, and I eventually realized that there were lots of people like Tom out there in the world. And the way that he talked about gay marriage, specifically the way that he avoided the question or avoided expressing an opinion about the issue, was a regular discourse. It was a regular feature of the gay marriage debate. It didn't always make it onto the television talk shows or onto the news stories, because conventionally you need people to speak for both sides, for and against. But people like Tom didn't want to speak either for or against it. They didn't want to talk about it at all. Uh, And so The first key to unraveling what made the identity cohort 
cohort different was to just try to map out what were the different patterns, what were the different ways that people talked about gay marriage. And here you find four categories of support. So unambiguous support, unambiguous opposition, um, libertarian pragmatism, and immoral inclusivity. So I was hoping you could explain what, what each of those were. Unambiguous opposition and unambiguous support are the discourses of the culture wars. If you ever heard an argument about same-sex marriage, that's what those two discourses sounded like. For the most part, the people who spoke in, about gay marriage in those ways were young liberals and older conservatives. And here I'm using the labels liberal and conservative uh, uh, as a sort of a hybrid political and religious ideology. So the culture war was really driven by older conservatives opposing gay marriage, younger liberals supporting it. But if you think about the situations of older liberals and young conservatives, they're a little bit different. Uh, and their discourses about gay marriage reflected the differences both in their worldviews and in their social networks. So for example, um, older liberals oftentimes shared the same political attitudes and religious orientations towards the question of same-sex marriage. Uh, they didn't find that there was particularly thing, anything immoral about homosexuality. They thought that the government should support equal rights for all. Uh, but at the same time, because they were older and because they came of age uh, uh, during an older time period in American society, they couldn't quite bring themselves to support gay marriage. And that was what was Tom, that was Tom's situation. Uh, he wanted to be supportive. He wanted to be inclusive, and in many ways. Um, he didn't find uh, the idea of homosexuality to be all that sinful or immoral, but he couldn't quite support same-sex marriage in the way that uh, younger liberals. Similarly, young religious conservatives felt a tension in their worldview and a tension in their social networks. Uh, so they agreed with their elders uh, and people who are like-minded uh, with them that homosexuality was a sin. But they also sort of agreed with people who they were age, who were their age, that they couldn't quite understand why older adults were getting so bent out of shape about things. Uh, and so they ended up constructing this discourse called immoral inclusivity, which basically goes like this. The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, but the Bible says that lots of other things are sins too. Uh, and these young conservative Christians thought that homosexuality was no worse of a sin than their own sins, and so that it would therefore be unfair to exclude lesbians and gays from having the same rights and privileges that they have. Many of my young religious informants compared the sin of homosexuality to the most trivial sins they could think of. One person compared it to stealing a candy bar from the convenience store down the road. Uh, they tried to minimize how big of a sin homosexuality was, and in doing so expressed sort of a solidarity or an identification with lesbians and gays. I argue in the chapter that these are discourses that didn't fit in the culture wars, 
that these individuals were sort of feeling the push and pull of the culture wars. But it was in those discourses that you could see really what difference the cohort made, you know, by comparing uh, younger students with their parents, even when they're ideologically similar to one another. Uh, but when they talk differently about gay marriage, then you can see what difference the cohort makes, why it is that the identity cohort uh, would be different from their elders. Yeah, I found that really interesting. And it ties in really well to chapter five, where you do talk directly about sort of young versus older respondents. Um, and here you have what you call a jackpot moment. When I was doing my interviews with people like Tom, I had this nagging feeling that there were things that people weren't saying to me. Uh, and I didn't know if people were censoring themselves. I didn't know how fully I could trust the things that people were saying to me. Um, and when I talked to uh, this student, Nick, who was, who was the one who gave me my jackpot moment, uh, he somehow managed to say all of the things that nobody else were saying. In other words, this hidden realm of ideas and beliefs that people never said, he somehow said. Uh, and in doing so, it, it brought into very stark relief the fact that when we talk about gay marriage and when we talk about a lot of other issues too, there are sort of two levels of the discourse. There's the things that we say out loud and there's the things that we think very explicitly and very directly. Um, that's at the level of our conscious, deliberate cognition. But then underneath that, there's the level of the things that we just take for granted. And we don't even know that we think them. Uh, and we certainly don't even say them because they're so obvious and so commonsensical that they don't even need to be said. And it was when I was talking to Nick that I finally realized that the big difference between young and old didn't have to do with what people said or thought deliberately. It was what they imagined implicitly. Uh, and it turned me on to the idea that the difference in gay marriage between young and old was just in how the two cohorts imagined this idea of gay marriage. When I ask you to think about gay marriage, what images come to your mind? Young and old had different images that came to their minds, and they articulated those images only in a very indirect way through the metaphors and the analogies and the other figurative tropes that they use to express themselves. Here you talk a little bit about the difference between orientation and attraction, so I was hoping you could talk more about that. Metaphors are very powerful and very common in language and culture. Metaphors are important for, for social scientists because they capture some of our fundamental taken-for-granted uh, ideas about the world. And then, of course, we communicate those fundamental taken-for-granted ideas through metaphors. Uh, so when I started thinking about what metaphors are and how they work, I realized that everything that we talk about uh, – sorry, I should back that up um, – all of the ways in which we talk about sexuality are shaped by metaphors. The idea of sexual orientation is itself a metaphor. 
orientation is a spatial metaphor. It refers to your sense of position in a space. Uh, and when I listened to my informants talk about sexuality, they used all sorts of uh, directional verbs like go and lean. Uh, and they talked about sexuality in terms of worlds or fields. Uh, so you had people uh, saying things like, uh, well, if you want to go that way, uh, be my guest, but leave me out of it. That sentence expressed about sexuality is all about thinking about sexuality in terms of spatial awareness. Similarly, when we talk about sexual attraction, we're drawing on a physics metaphor that refers to, uh, in this case, two individuals as being subject to these forces, these forces of attraction that are beyond our control. They don't come from within us. They come from somewhere else. And we as individuals are being pushed and pulled by these forces. So for example, we fall in love. Uh, and many of us have the feeling of being drawn to somebody, you know, their eyes met from across the room. And when I started to notice all of the different metaphors that people use to talk about sexuality, I realized that some metaphor use was patterned in ways that mattered uh, uh, for the discourse. So everybody talked about sexual orientation. Everybody talked about sexual attraction. But young people, the identity cohort, they used identity metaphors much more than their elders did, and in a way that characterized sexuality as an identity. And then the, their parents, who were themselves baby boomers, they used a variety of behavioral metaphors uh, to talk about sexuality. And in doing so, they characterize homosexuality not as who you are, but as what you do. I'll give you one quick example of each. Uh, young people in particular compared the battle over gay marriage to the struggle for civil rights for African Americans. Uh, so they thought of uh, same-sex attraction as being similar to you know, interracial attraction. They thought of the ban against gay marriage as being like the ban against interracial marriage. They thought of uh, the struggle for gay marriage to be this long-term struggle, just like civil rights for African Americans was this long-term struggle. And there were other ways that young people used analogies to convey the idea that your sexuality was no different than your race or than your gender. It's just part of who you are. By contrast, an example of a behavioral metaphor is the word lifestyle. And older adults use the word lifestyle to talk about homosexuality, whereas young people pretty much didn't. The idea of a lifestyle is that it's a set of things that you do. It's a set of behaviors. And if you use the word lifestyle to talk about something, you convert someone's identity into a set of behaviors. So for example, we might talk about the college student lifestyle. You know, because you're a college student, you sit around and you eat ramen noodles and you study until 4am and you drink lots of coffee, right? That's the student lifestyle. Um, young people talked about the student lifestyle. They talked about the military lifestyle, but young people never talked about sexuality as a lifestyle, but older adults did. Uh, and so from this analysis of the metaphors and analogies that the two cohorts used, 
I interpreted uh, this as the uh, uh, the real root of the generational change. It wasn't that young and old disagreed about gay marriage. It's that their fundamental schemas, their imagination for sexuality were so different that they couldn't even understand each other. Young people and old people, when asked to imagine the question of gay marriage, were effectively imagining two different things. And that's the reason why we saw this difference in attitudes in the public opinion data. Yeah, it really supports what your research question really well, I think. And so religion has come up a few times um, in the discussion so far. But something that was really interesting that pops up in chapter six is that the religious meaning associated with marriage actually, as you mentioned in the book, prompts many atheists to actually have the same conclusion about gay marriage as some very religious respondents. So I was hoping you could talk more about that in terms of the reinstitutionalization of marriage. When I finally understood that the difference in the discourse in gay about gay marriage between young and old had to do with their imagination of homosexuality, I wondered specifically what difference people's imaginations of marriage made. In other words, if gay marriage is about, you know, a combination of of gay rights and marriage, how important is this idea of marriage to people? How much did this debate about uh, whether marriage is a civil, secular institution or a, a religious and spiritual institution, how much of a difference did that make in the debate? And what I found was that, uh, This argument about the definition of marriage played into the culture wars debate of of opposition and support. So these two sides who were fighting with each other about gay marriage, they wielded the definition of marriage as a weapon. But beneath that explicit disagreement about whether marriage is a religious institution or a civil institution, I found that both young and old supporters and opponents alike all more or less imagined marriage in the same way. So in other words, beneath the definitional issue or beneath the definitional difference, there was a generational consensus about what marriage means in practice. And when I asked my informants to talk about marriage in general, outside of the context of this specific controversy of gay marriage, I found that the ways that people talked about marriage ended up supporting the idea, at least implicitly, that the idea of gay marriage would make sense. For example, uh, young and old more or less agreed on what the meaning of marriage was. Young and old more or less agreed on what important characteristics you had to have in order to have a successful marriage. And when I asked people, uh, how important do you think it is for a married couple to have children? you know, the old procreative definition of marriage. Pretty much everyone said, well, you may want to have it or you might not want to have it, but I don't think you should force someone to have children if they don't want to have children. It was a very pragmatic attitude. What's interesting about this is that people didn't think the same way about sexual attraction. So when I asked people, well, how important is sexual attraction for a marriage? People would say, well, you got to have that. Sexual attraction was part of the marriage schema. The idea of marriage without sexual attraction between two individuals was nonsense to most people. What else? uh, Why would you get married to someone if you weren't sexually attracted to them? Why wouldn't you just be friends with them instead? So in people's imaginations of what marriage means, 
it included sexual attraction, but not necessarily procreation. And so I argued that um, beneath the controversy of the gay marriage debate and beneath this controversy of whether marriage was religious or civil, there was this shared understanding of marriage uh, that it was a relationship between two individuals who are sexually attracted to one another, uh, but who didn't necessarily need or want to procreate. Uh, and so the the fundamental American imagination of marriage was quite consistent with the idea of gay marriage. It doesn't actually, you know, the idea of uh, letting uh, two people of the same sex get married doesn't challenge the basic day-to-day assumptions about what marriage means for a person's life. So when when we do research, we're always looking for sort of the common stories, um, which you find, but you also find some extreme cases. So for instance, you have uh, a young man named Taylor who equates gay marriage to all sorts of other extreme behaviors. So I was hoping you could talk more about some of the exceptional cases you found in your interviews. It was by no means true that all young people supported gay marriage, just like it's by no means true that all older people opposed gay marriage. So for my final empirical chapter in the book, I I wanted to look specifically at those people and what we could learn about the case of gay marriage and the question of generational change from those individuals. Uh, What I found was that there are many different influences involved in the generational shift beyond just a person's age or a person's birth year. And this gets at the importance of the distinction between cohort and generation that I began with. The idea of a cohort is that everybody's the same. You know, you all share the same same birth year. But of course, we all know that just because you know someone's birth year doesn't mean you know anything about them. So um, looking at these exceptional cases showed me that there was a big difference between people of a given cohort, sort of whether they were even in the generation or not. So for a lot of young people who were just as opposed to gay marriage as their parents, I wanted to understand how they could avoid this generational understanding of homosexuality that other people of their age seem to be getting. And they were more or less totally immersed in sort of conservative Christian networks. Um, Many of them uh, were, you know, raised in the same church that they went to school at. Their family, all their friends, all of their social lives revolved around the church that they went to. Uh, And so because of the religious conservative networks that they found themselves in, they were more or less insulated from the broader generational shift in the imagination of sexuality that had affected the rest of society. There was a similar case for older liberals too. Of, uh, Of the older liberals who were just as supportive of gay marriage as their children, many of them reported uh, significant involvement in the counterculture of the 1960s and the feminist movements of the 70s, uh, and and those old that older uh, period of social movement activism. Uh, and because they were involved in that counterculture, they developed countercultural views and countercultural attitudes uh, long before uh, it became normal or mainstream. So these individuals, these older individuals were just as out of step with the older generational understanding of sexuality 
as many young opponents of gay marriage are today. Um, They were immersed in these different social worlds that defined sexuality in ways that were out of touch with the mainstream. And I argue that these are sort of the exceptions that prove the rule, right? It would be unrealistic to expect all members of a cohort or even all members of a generation to think in exactly the same way about about every issue. So what's important to do when we understand or we want to try to understand generational change is to find the limits of that generational shift. What was the historical event? What was the trend that's causing this new generation to emerge? And as just as it, as it is important to identify who's being affected by the trend or the event, we also have to specify who isn't being affected and what the limits of that generational change are going to be. I always like to ask about the researchers' experience in doing the data analysis and the interviews. And something in your conclusion chapter that kind of gets at this is that you start out by saying, you know, you thought that this was going to be um, an issue that you would be researching for 40 years, right? Um, and so I was hoping you could sort of talk about your experience um, with this research question as well as where you see the future of gay marriage. Uh, it will probably not surprise many of your listeners to find out that the public opinion shift about gay marriage uh, was incredibly fast. In fact, by one analysis, there has been no other recorded issue in the history of public opinion that has changed more and more quickly than the question of gay marriage. So when I first conducted my interviews with uh, my informants, I gave them a question that asked them to think to 20, 30, or 40 years into the future and to imagine whether or not same-sex marriage would ever be legal. And almost all of them said yes, um, which was interesting in itself. It was also interesting how wrong my timeline was. I conducted these interviews back in 2008, and same-sex marriage was legal in all 50 states only seven years later. So uh, there's... uh, In terms of the future of same-sex marriage, this tells us one important thing, and that is that because of the generational change that was happening at the time, that my informants all more or less perceived to some degree, same-sex marriage is unlikely to to become illegal anytime soon. Um, In other words, ever since the legalization of gay marriage in all 50 states back in 2015, public support for gay marriage has continued to rise. And in part, that's because of this population turnover, the cohort replacement, where older people with uh, a different understanding of sexuality are being replaced by this new imagination, or young people with this new imagination of sexuality as an identity. So with every passing year, uh, the idea of gay marriage becomes more and more integrated into American society, into our common sense understandings of the world, and the chance of gay marriage being repealed uh, goes down. Uh, and so I think gay marriage is here with us to stay. So in your conclusion chapter, you have three main takeaways. And I was hoping you could tell us what really are the big ideas that you want the listeners to lead with. I want listeners and, and people who read my book to come away thinking about the idea of generational change in a different way. Normally, when we talk about generations, we hear things about millennials or Generation X, the idea that all of a society can be broken up into a series of generations or cohorts, and you're only in one, and you're totally different from the other ones. 
So I was born in 1980, for example. Um, am I Generation X or am I Millennial? Uh, and what difference does that make? This way of thinking about generations comes from a discredited view of generations that has virtually no social scientific evidence to support it. I want people who read my book to come away with a different way of thinking about generations. One where we all have lots of generational memberships, all based on the kinds of events that happened to us or the kinds of things that didn't happen to us when we were coming of age during late adolescence and early adulthood. So for example, the people in the gay marriage generation, this identity cohort, this includes more or less every, uh, everyone born after 1975 or so. Um, this would include people who are both Generation X and Millennials, if you wanted to use those labels. But since those labels don't mean much anything, I think we should just get beyond that. But in any case, of all of these people, uh, some people like me uh, came of age during 9-11, uh, or during the Monica Lewinsky scandal of the Clinton administration. Um, other people in the gay marriage generation uh, weren't even born then, or weren't even uh, uh, old enough to remember those events. Uh, and instead, they came of age uh, during the advent of the iPhone in 2007. So I have some things in common with other people in the gay marriage generation, uh, but then there are other people in the gay marriage generation that I am different from. All generational memberships and all generational identities are like that. We should think about generations as groups that emerge in response to specific historic events. And because there are so many historic events that happen all the time that have the ability to change the way we view the world, we are all part of many, many, many distinct generations. Great. Thank you. So today we've been talking with Peter Hart Brinson about his book, The Gay Marriage Generation, How the LGBTQ Movement Transformed American Culture. So what are you working on now, Peter? Right now, I am trying to wrap up a few loose ends from this book project. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, I'm working on an article uh, that tries to update our uh, theory of generations for sociologists for a new century. It's been 90 years since Karl Mannheim wrote his the essential reading on generations and still the most influential piece on generations that we have. Um, and I'm trying to update that for uh, the next generation of sociologists. Well, you know where we are if you write another book. <laughs> so thank you for being with us today, Peter. Thanks for having me.